You're listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go, a podcast that'll change how you think and change your life. I'm Willie Horton and I'm a psychologist. I've been helping people change their lives since 1996. Broadcasting from the French Alps and delighted to have you along. Let's take this week's step in the right direction. Constantly, and I mean constantly, get emails from people telling me that they are overthinking things. Now, often they don't say it like that. They say, I'm thinking too much about this, that, or the other. I'm thinking, what if this? What if that? What if the other? I'm thinking about how I mightn't be able to trust myself as a result of the error of my ways in the past. I'm thinking about what somebody thinks of me. It's really mad if you think about it. Don't think about it, actually. And some people will actually get to the point to actually say to me, I am very good at overthinking. As if on the one hand, it's kind of something to be proud of. And on the other hand, it is something that they realize, in even having emailed me in the first place, that this is something that they need to deal with. My answer to anybody who ever tells me that they are overthinkers is that that's okay. It's normal. It's how the normal mind is constructed. If you go back to some of the early podcast episodes, you will hear me explain what the neural lab in UCLA has been researching for years in relation to how the normal mind is so noisy, how every waking day the normal mind is subjected, and I mean subjected, tortured by, subjected to 70,000, on average, 70,000 thoughts a day. Those thoughts whiz through our mind randomly during the course of the day, but they're not random thoughts. These thoughts are the same thoughts day in, day out. They are the thoughts that our normally constructed mind has used all of our adult lives to enable us make it through the day. They are the thoughts that give rise to something else that I get a load of emails about. My inner dialogue is a wonderful one. I have a really active inner dialogue, as if that's something to be proud of. I mean, you need to ask yourself, if you're talking to yourself, who is talking to whom? Because ultimately, there is only one of you. Now, I know, and we've explored this in the past, that actually, on an ordinary everyday basis, when we use our minds normally, there are two of you. There is the real you, who is being shouted at, by the conceptual you. The conceptual you, and the hint is in the name, is just a bundle of concepts. It isn't actually who you think you are, but it is the guy or gal making the biggest amount of noise in your head. This is the guy or girl who knows nothing, who thinks they know everything about everything. They are, I quoted a friend of mine a couple of podcast episodes back in relation to what are known in the pharmaceutical industry and possibly other industries as well as subject matter 
experts, SMEs, people who have a huge amount of information in relation to a very specific field of knowledge. And his definition of a subject matter expert, having encountered many over the years, is somebody who knows more and more about less and less until they know everything about nothing. This is a wonderful definition of your conceptual self. The conceptual self, the person who's shouting at you, telling you you can't do this or you can't do that, or you need to think things through, or you need to figure things out, or you need to have a plan. We'll come back to that one in a minute. This conceptual self, this person shouting at you, knows everything about nothing that is going on in the here and now. The 70,000 thoughts, and if you reflect on what I said a minute ago, that these same 70,000 thoughts are the 70,000 thoughts on a daily basis that your normally constructed mind has been using every day of your adult life to enable you make it through the day, then these thoughts originated before your 12th or 13th birthday. The really fundamental ones, as we know from previous conversations, come from the third year of your life. If you're almost 64, like I'm almost 64, and if I were using my mind normally, the thoughts I would use to enable me make it through the day would be thoughts that first occurred to me in probably 1960. They would be the key thoughts, 1960, 1961. So everything that I knew, or at least even then I thought I knew about what was going on in 1961, is what I use now to enable me think I know what's going on in 2022. It, it just can't work. It can't work. And therefore, as a result of using our minds normally, we tie ourselves up in thoughts, thinking that we're thinking about what is going on now, whereas actually what we're doing is rehashing old thoughts and thinking that we are making headway in our daily lives. Now, actually, most of the emails that I get come to a different conclusion. The conclusion they come to is that they are stuck in their lives. And as I said recently, if you think you're stuck, you are. If you think you are introverted, you are. If you think you're an extrovert, you are. If you think you're depressed, you are. If you think you're stressed, you definitely are, because the thinking that you're stressed is what triggers the stress response. Let's boil this all down to one single fundamental fact. Everything that is apparently wrong with your life is the result of thought. Everything. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with somebody who told me that a very good friend of his was borderline bipolar and that it was purely a chemical thing. Nothing anybody could do about it other than feed this person drugs. I made a couple of points to him. Being labelled bipolar by somebody who has probably spoken to you for 12 minutes, that's the average consultation time in the psychiatric profession, at least in the United States, being labelled by somebody who doesn't know you doesn't mean you are that. Most people, when they are labelled as being depressed or bipolar or whatever, you, you name it, whatever 
label people are given, they wear it as a badge of pride. They say, oh, I'm bipolar, not as if it excuses them for their behavior, but because it actually gives them some greater importance, self-importance in their own lives that they can project onto other people. Why? Because when we use our mind normally, we think we are oh so unimportant. We think we are oh so little. We think we are oh so less than we actually really are. I said to this guy, well, first of all, that's a label. Secondly, say if it is actually true that this is a chemical reaction in the brain. Who controls the chemicals in your brain? But before I answer that question, let me talk about a client that I met a number of years ago, who, when I met him first, told me that he had been told by a psychiatrist that he was suffering from depression. He was withdrawn from other people. That was the key symptom that led this guy who met him for 50 minutes. It's the key con conclusion that this professional leapt to. And the reason I say he leapt to it was my friend, my client said to me, I met this guy for 50 minutes. He talked about himself for 45 minutes, talked about me for three minutes and spent another two minutes writing a prescription for drugs because he told me I was clinically depressed. We talked for two days, slightly longer than the five minutes that the professional was actually talking to my client about my client. We talked for two days and in the middle of the first evening, my client explained to me how he had grown up as an only child. He hadn't been around people of his own age during the crucial third year of his life when we learn how to negotiate, collaborate, communicate with other people and manipulate other people. These are the key social skills that we learn during the third year of our lives. And as I said recently, it, somewhere else, it may have been on one of these podcasts, your ability to negotiate, communicate and collaborate in the third year of your life is the most accurate predictor of your social skills as an adult. This guy had no social skills as an adult. He was labelled as being depressed when in fact he had no social skills as an adult because he never learned them during the crucial third year of his life. And yet when I met him, he was going around almost boasting about being depressed. It made him feel more important. The fact of the matter was that simply having used his mind normally on automatic pilot being fed by those 70,000 thoughts that I've referred to a couple of times now. He was constantly replaying the stuff that he learned about himself during the third year of his life. And he learned very little about himself during the third year of his life because very little happened during the third year of his life. Now, I know some people immediately say to me in relation to the third year of your life, oh my God, I have an only child. What damage did I do to him or her by not allowing them mingle with other people? It's much better nowadays, because there are creches and play schools, than it was when my friend was growing up, when there was absolutely no support for that kind of situation at all. But he told me, as I said, that he was depressed. He actually told me he was clinically depressed, that it was a chemical thing. That's twice I've said that in this particular conversation. And I asked him the same question that I asked my other friend. Who do you think controls the chemicals in your brain? 
He said, what do you mean? I said, chemicals don't have a mind of their own, do they? If you, for example, find cortisol cascading through your body as a result of the stress response, is it the cortisol's fault? Did cortisol decide in the first place, oh, I'm going to cascade through your body, increase your heart rate, increase your blood pressure, depress your digestive system and turn off your immune system? Did cortisol decide that? Of course cortisol didn't decide that. Cortisol doesn't have a mind of its own. It's only a chemical. You decided. You chose. If we are cascading neurotransmitters around our neural pathways, or if we are cascading chemicals outwardly into our bodies from our brains, it is as a result of how we are thinking. We all have a choice to make moment to moment in relation to how we are thinking. But before I go any further, you might say to yourself, as a number of people have said to me over the years, are you telling me that drugs will not cure depression? What I am actually telling you is that depression is not an illness. Depression is the construct of thought. There is a wonderful book called Depression is Not an Illness, It is an Emotion by a number of Irish psychiatrists and psychologists. I, I'll, I'll put a link to it somewhere along the way, I will. Anyway, depression doesn't exist except in the mind of the beholder. Bipolar doesn't exist except in the mind of the beholder. And we know for a fact from previous conversations, because we've gone into it in such great detail and depth, that stress doesn't exist except in the mind of the beholder. So if you are suffering from any of the above or, or a load of other stuff, it's all as a result of overthinking. You're not suffering from these things at all. You only think you are suffering from these things. As I say that, a conversation with a client from a number of years ago springs to mind. Somebody who was suffering from, or at least had been told he was suffering from all manner of mental illness. He was actually told he was suffering from mental illness. He asked me, are the 70,000 thoughts in my mind so much bigger and worse than everybody else's? I said, I'm sorry to tell you this, that you're not unique. You're not even special. Your 70,000 thoughts are pretty much like anybody else's 70,000 thoughts. It's just that you're very good at paying attention to your 70,000 thoughts. And this brings us to the nub of the situation. This brings us to the crossroads at which we find ourselves in every now, every day. This brings us to the key decision that you need to make moment to moment or the key choice that you need to make moment to moment. The choice is simply this. Listen to this carefully. Do I continue paying attention to the thoughts that are holding me back? Or do I turn my attention to something more real? Let's take this in baby steps. That's the choice. Now, the first point I would make is that most people don't know that they have a choice. All the literature in relation to stress will tell you that the stress response is the most automated response that we have in our makeup. And that is true because it got us out of potentially very dangerous or life-threatening situations seven, eight, ten thousand years ago. 
But the fact that it is an automated response doesn't mean that I can't choose to disengage the automated pilot that makes the automated response. In other words, stress is still a choice. Okay, for most people, they don't know that stress is a choice. And for those that do know that it is a choice, very often they have some difficulty getting their head around the fact that they can make the choice rather than allow the choice be made automatically for them. So really what I'm saying in relation to that apparent digression is most of the literature, a lot of the so-called experts that we've kind of alluded to earlier on in this conversation, most of the literature will tell you, yes, these things are going on. They're going on in your head and they're going on in your head and they're going to continue going on in your head anyway because they're things that your brain is designed to do. Your brain is only designed to do that as long as you allow it to continue behaving that way. Because one of the great advances in neuroscience over the last 20 or 30 years is that we now know that you can restructure your brain so that it behaves in the way you want it to behave in your life. And this all starts with the little crossroads, and really only is a little crossroads, that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. In this moment, you have a choice. And the choice is, do I continue being an overthinker? Do I continue not just having an inner dialogue, but going around boasting about it? Do I continue being depressed? Do I continue being stressed? Do I continue being an introvert or an extrovert? Do I continue holding myself back? Or do I not say to myself, because that would continue the inner dialogue, or do I choose to stop all that by taking a deep breath and feeling what it's like to take the deep breath? It is that simple. You're breathing all the time. On how many occasions today have you paid attention to your breathing? You, you won't have paid attention to your breathing unless you're a meditator because you're operating on automatic pilot and your automatic pilot is designed to pay attention to your 70,000 thoughts. It'll never pay attention to any of your senses. So in other words, if somebody says something to you, like, how are you today? Now, there's a very simple sentence. You will not hear it. You will hear what you think the other person means. Or actually, it's worse than that. When you hear those words, who you think you are will think about what you think the other person is, is thinking about in saying those words in the first place. And will analyze that according to your mood, according to how you feel about yourself, and according to how you feel about the other person. There are multiple thoughts involved that distance us from the reality of something Oh, so simple as that. So you have a choice to make. And it is a life-changing choice, and it's a tiny choice. But it's a tiny choice that has to be made again and again and again until, you're not going to have to make this choice for the rest of your life, until you have restructured your brain so that it starts behaving in a way that it makes these choices for you on the basis of what is really going on in the here and now rather than the old way that it made these choices for you automatically as a result of paying attention to the 70,000 thoughts that you learned in your childhood.
what am I saying to you? I'm saying to you, first of all, that you need to meditate. You need to learn to pay attention to what some or all of your five senses are actually telling you. That's all meditation is at the most basic level. Meditation is what John Kabat-Zinn in the University of Massachusetts Medical School calls coming to your senses. Actually seeing what's going on rather than looking at something and think you know what you're looking at or hearing what is being said or hearing the sound of the birds. You know, people have said to me over the years after having meditated for a couple of weeks, I remember getting a call from somebody many years ago, this guy called John, and he said, I can hear the birds singing. I said, John, the birds are singing every morning. It's just that you're hearing them for the first time. He started paying attention to what he was seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling and tasting. That, at its most basic level, is what meditation enables us to do. It enables us to come to our senses. What does that actually mean for us in our daily lives? It means that I now have the ability to choose to pay attention to what is actually going on in the moment as being experienced by my five senses, as distinct from my mind automatically paying attention to the 70,000 thoughts that divorce me from the reality of the moment, hold me back and send me down the vortex of depression, stress and all that bad stuff that we talked about earlier on. In other words, it is a complete game changer. It will change your life straight away. I'm not saying that will change your life straight away, once and for all. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said a minute ago that this is a little choice you have to make again and again and again. You could meditate first thing in the morning and be the picture of peace and calm and zen-like being in the moment, and an hour later be all over the place as a result of something that has happened to you, or actually something that you did to yourself as a result of reverting to your normal way of thinking. You know, People often say to me, if there's nobody else around to distract me, I'm very good at distracting myself. And indeed, there's a load of science and research over the last 40 or 50 years to say that is what we will ultimately do if nobody else is around to distract us. We'll drive ourselves demented. But that's only when we're using our minds normally. So what you need to do is meditate every morning because that's the basic if you don't get the basics right, you're going to get nothing else right in your life. And then during the course of the day, you need to do what I said a few minutes ago that you needed to do. You need to stop and breathe and notice how that feels. Or if breathing doesn't turn you on, and it doesn't turn some people on, you could stop and listen. Actually listen to what's going on. Or you could stop and feel. You could rub the palms of your hands together and feel what that is like. There are a variety of different ways in which we can use the five senses that we have at our disposal to come to our senses in the moment. The minute you start doing this, you start sending neural traffic down different pathways in your brain. And the minute you start putting your brain to a new use, the brain will facilitate that new use by restructuring itself. It will expand those pathways that haven't been used in the past. Neural pathways can expand by up to 1,000% in diameter. It will thicken the insulation 
around those neural pathways. The insulation that enhances the connectivity of the traffic in your neural pathways can double in thickness. It will build new pathways where necessary. That's the really interesting thing. It was thought for years that only very young children had so-called stem cells in the brain. In other words, cells that could create new neural pathways. We now know that even people in their 70s have stem cells. The brain will create new neural pathways where necessary. So the minute you start meditating, this process of reconstruction in your brain kicks off. And the minute it kicks off, it is going to be built upon day by day, moment by moment, that you make the right choice. And the construction will not be stopped or reversed as a result of you failing to make the right choice now and again. You see, people often say to themselves or say to me, oh, I didn't meditate this morning. First of all, I know because I can see it with my very eyes now the results of not meditating this morning. But I didn't meditate this morning. Is that going to set me back? No, it isn't. It isn't because you're building all of the time. And every time we make one of those little choices at these little crossroads that we encounter day to day, moment to moment, every time we make that right choice, we further enhance our ability to make that right choice with a decreasing need for ourselves to actually decide to do it. In other words, the more you decide to do it yourself at the outset, the sooner you will get to the point where you will start doing it for yourself effortlessly. Our lives are lived in moments. We often look at the grand scheme of things in our lives and think we need plans. I mentioned that earlier on. I forgot to come back to it in this episode, so I'll come back to it in next week's episode. We think we can figure out how we can get from where we are to where we want to go. And most people, actually using their minds that way, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, realize that that isn't how it works at all. You know, the old expression that if you want to give God a good laugh, tell her your plans. That, that's basically what I'm talking about. That's kind of the kickoff of what we might talk about next week. We think all these things, and most importantly, the thinking of any of these things leaves the door open to the 70,000 thoughts that drag us down, that take us away from the reality of the here and now, that do this automatically when we're using our minds automatically using the inbuilt automatic pilot but regardless of how automatic our choices have been over our adult lives up to now regardless of how automated for example the stress response is all of these things are choices and that means that you have a choice and the choice isn't a huge choice you're not going to have to make a big decision Indeed, you're not going to get to make any big or grand decisions in your life at all if you don't make the little choice, if you don't get the little choice right. The little choice is so, so simple. I could even simplify it more than I explained it earlier on. The choice is simple. Am I here or am I not? Most people are not here. Most people are marked absent. Most people are absent without leave as their lives are passing them by. Most people are buried in the world of thought. 
most people are making a cup of tea at the moment, thinking about what they'll do 10 minutes later. Most people are doing something now worried about what will happen next. Some people are so caught up in worry that they become basically disabled, frozen in the headlights. These are all the product of only one thing. Not thought, but not getting the little choice right. That is the key message from this episode. We have a single choice in life. We only have one decision that we need to make in life. Everything flows from getting this decision right. So, right now, are you here or not? And as this day progresses, ask yourself, am I here or not? And you know what? Even if you, and this is quite likely or very likely for the normally minded person, even if you discover that you're not all there when you ask yourself that question, that's self-awareness. So in other words, you brought yourself back to the reality of the moment. It is as simple as putting one foot in front of the other moment to moment during the course of our day. Because, as I said earlier on, our lives are lived in moments. And we'll talk about the folly of plans next week. You've been listening to To Succeed, Just Let Go. To get involved, join me in my Facebook group, strangely enough called To Succeed, Just Let Go. And for more information, visit www.willie-horton.com.